Hey, it's Irving, and you are listening to Agents in Space. No guests this week, but for the past few years now, I've written a list of my favorite songs of the year. However, this year I haven't listened to enough new music to justify a list. To be honest, I found it very difficult to focus on reading or listening to anything new. One thing I've, I have been able to consume and enjoy has been anime. The last anime I watched was the first season of One Punch Man and Attack on Titan a few years ago. But other than that, I've never watched much of it in my adult life. It took a whole ass pandemic for me to find it again and I've watched more of it this year than the entire previous decade combined. So in lieu of a music list this year, instead I will be writing about my 10 favorite anime episodes. Before we begin, I must set some ground rules. The first rule being that the anime could have been released any year, it only must be new to me this year. So the episode where Gohan ascends to Super Saiyan 2 against Cell is not valid for example. Another rule for this list is only one episode per show to keep this list as diverse as possible. And the last is that I can only choose one season or series finale only because as someone who loves endings, it would be easy to just talk about how each anime pays off. And as always, my definition of favorite varies and changes depending on the context. It could mean best, most important, or most resonant, but as always, if you're thinking about it that hard, you're probably not having fun. And fun is the point of lists like this. So enjoy. And this is your spoiler warning as well. Well, the first anime I have listed is Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai. The episode I have chosen is from Season 1, Episode 3, The World Without You. Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai follows the relationship between second-year high school student Sakuta Azugawa and his girlfriend and senpai, my Sakura Jimmy, as they navigate and learn about the phenomenon that brought them together known as Adolescent Syndrome. Sakita has a bad reputation at school for false rumors of him hospitalizing a group of boys in a fight. And because of these rumors, Sakita keeps a low profile at school and passively moves through his day-to-day unwilling to fight against the school's feelings towards him because what could he possibly do to fight something as powerful and vague as another person's perceptions and preconceived notions? This changes upon seeing Mai walking around the library in a bunny costume while nobody else notices her. Mai is a child actor who has grown tired of the spotlight and soon realizes that no one in the world can even notice her presence. Sakuta and Mai try to figure out the cause of this before she is forgotten entirely. Quote the explanation of adolescent syndrome in a sentence. Takes the desires and wishes of an adolescent and makes them real, but not in the way the person wants. In Mai's case, she wants a break from the spotlight. So her adolescent syndrome makes it so everyone in the world that knows of her cannot perceive her. In other cases, later in the series, a girl who wants to be cooler so her syndrome manifests a clone of them that possesses all of the qualities she wishes she could express. In another, a girl doesn't know the best way to reject the unwanted advances of a boy whom her friend also likes, so she is stuck in a Groundhog's Day style loop until she finds a way to resolve the situation without hurting her friend. Solving these cases is the core loop of the show. In the world without you, Sakuta and Mai struggle against her adolescence syndrome as more and more people forget who she is. Sakuta and his friend Ryo Futaba conclude that a combination of the school's atmosphere, Mai's existence cannot be acknowledged by people who refuse to do so, and sleep are the cause of people forgetting her. Sakuta does his best not to forget her, even as midterms approach later in the week. He tries to keep himself awake. And in case he does fall asleep, he writes a note to himself urging him not to forget and that he must remember Mai. Mai realizes what he is trying to do and helps him study as a way to trick him so she can sleep sleeping pills into his drink. Sakuta tries his best to fight this as Mai comforts him and thanks him for all he has done for her and assures him that since She's been alone for so long already that she'll be that she'll be okay. Sakuta wakes up the next morning and finds a note he had wrote for himself, but cannot remember Mai nor the things that they did together. 
During the exam, a question about a certain kanji that Mai was teaching him about the previous night jogs his memory, and he scolds himself for forgetting before rushing out of the exam room. Remembering what Ryo had told him earlier in the episode about what it would be needed to overcome the atmosphere, to break the syndrome, Saikito rushes outside and proclaims his love for Mai so the entire school can hear. It works, and Mai appears behind him and scolds him for forgetting her after promising her that he wouldn't. To repay him, Mai announces to the school that all the rumors outside are bogus and refuses to tell him that she loves him. Because how could she know if it was true under such wild circumstances? Rakuta accepts this, but tells her that he won't let her go until she finally does. My favorite moment of the episode is when Sakuta remembers Mai and runs outside of the school to proclaim his love. Not only because you root for the two of them, but because of his inner monologue and growth as a character. He says, from here on, I must face the atmosphere. The atmosphere that won't move even if I push, pull, or slap it around. The atmosphere surrounding the school. It's easy to follow the leader. Deciding if everything is good or bad on your own uses a ton of calories. And to have a will of your own, it can hurt to be denied. To that point, you stay safe and sound, being the same as everyone else. You don't have to see what you don't want to. You don't have to think about what you don't want to. You can leave everything to someone else. But there's no reason to torment someone just because everyone else is doing it. Because everyone is doing it. Because everyone says so. That doesn't make it true. Who's this everyone anyway? She always treated me as the younger one and teased me. She blew off whenever I tried sexy talk and her face would get completely red. She was so obstinate and put up a front trying to hide those mistakes. Selfish, a queen whimsical, and yet surprisingly naive, a senpai one year older than me. I won't let people ignore her anymore. I won't let people look and pretend not to. I'll engrave her into everyone's memory so much that they won't be able to. There's plenty of ships I would commit violence to protect on this list, and we'll get to them. And Sakuta and Mai fall into that category. But unlike other relationships on this list, it was nice that even if not verbally on Mai's part, they were able to communicate their feelings for one another so early on in the series run. Number nine, I have Angel Beats. Season one, episode 10, Goodbye Days. Angel Beats is a series that asks, what if you had an unfulfilled childhood or adolescence and you had to discover that in high school, but high school is in limbo slash purgatory before being able to pass on. Angel Beats follows Yuzuru Otonashi, a boy with amnesia, as he finds himself in limbo. Here he discovers his classmates who form the Afterlight Battlefront, co-founded by Yuri Nakamura and Hideki Hanada. Yuri leads this group against the injustices of the Unseen God and the student council president who is believed to be God's associate because of her seemingly supernatural powers, a girl named Angel. After regaining his memories, Otonashi befriends Angel, whose real name is Kanade Tachibana, and learns the true purpose of this afterlife and decides to help Kanade fulfill the wishes of the members of Battlefront so they can find peace and pass on. The first person Otonashi decides to help is a girl named Yui, who we learn was bedridden in her young life and feels guilty that her mother spent so much time caring for her. She laments not being able to leave her room and run around and play like other kids. She tells Otanashi that she wants to be able to do a German suplex, score a goal in soccer by joling past five defenders like Maradona, and hit a home run over the fence. After countless core exercises and pay laid upon Otanashi's neck and head, she is successful in performing one and bridging for a pin on him. Otanashi enlists the help of five members of the battlefront to challenge Yui as Kanadi takes care of the defenders from a distance to allow Yui to dribble past them and score a goal. And finally, Yui and Otanashi practice for days on end trying to hit a home run, but it is useless. Otanashi does his best to encourage Yui more, but Yui lets that dream go and admits to being fulfilled. 
no matter how calloused her hands are and how sore her body is, she was able to play baseball for days on end, and that was something she could only ever dream of when she was alive. Otanashi wonders if that is enough, and Yui admits she has one more wish, and it is to get married. She asks Otanashi if he would marry her, which causes him to fumble his response before Hideki tells Yui that he'll marry her. Up to this point, Yui and Hideki have had a turbulent relationship, to say the least. They sneak attack each other, and he always reprimands her for being so childish, while she finds his constant nagging annoying. But they care deeply for one another, and it is proven in this moment. Yui at first resists and tells him that they would never meet because she would never would have had the chance to be as active as he was. Hideki brushes this concern off by telling her that he would hit a baseball for her window. And when he would go to the house to apologize, he would find her there. He would come back because he would want to get to know her and help alleviate the workload that Yui's mother had. Hideki assures her that no matter in what life, he would find, he would find her and fall in love with her over and over again. Yui moves on after this and disappears from afterlife. Otanashi wonders if Hideki can also move on now. And Hideki assures Otanashi he won't be able to move on until he helps Otanashi fulfill his mission. Angel Beats was in, was an was an interesting series, to say the least. I didn't expect to be as heart-wrenching as it was with the amount of action in the first few episodes. And even after one person moves on in an early episode, the narrative quickly shifts to a new character thus not allowing time to process what moving on in this world actually means. Angel Beats is about the journey, what people are able to let go, whether it's assumptions or preconceived notions about something or someone, or simply the idea of hitting a home run. In order to take the next step, we never know where that next step might take us. But if we knew exactly where we were going at all times, well, where's the fun in that? Number eight on the list is Hunter Hunter, season four, episode six, Strengthen and Frighten. So in order to keep this from being a two-hour podcast, um, here's a quick primer of what you need to know about Hunter Hunter. The world is filled with impossible monsters and even more impossible people who can manipulate a life force called Nen in order to have impossible abilities. The story focuses on a 12-year-old boy named Golem Freaks who leaves home in order to take the hunter exam and become a pro hunter like his estranged father, Gene, who left Gon with his aunt, shout out to Aunt Mito, when Gon was a baby. Gon meets his best friend, another 12-year-old, who's heir to the world's most esteemed and feared assassin family, Kilua Zoltik, at the exam. The series follows Gon and Kilua as they make their way through this world, become stronger as they find more clues about locating Gene. In season four, they are, they are in a real life video game called Greed Island, designed for hunters and people who can use Nen that was created by Gene and his friends. Gon and Kiwa believe that if they can clear the game, they will find more about, they will find more clues to Gene's whereabouts. Strengthen and Fredden sees Gon and Kiwa training under a woman named Biscuit Kruger, aka Bisky, the master of their first Nen master to learn and develop Nen techniques that are necessary to beat the game. In my opinion, this is one of Hunter Hunter's strengths as a story. While Nen abilities are wild and wacky and at the mercy of the creator's imagination, they are grounded in rules of the story's universe. The anime does an excellent job showing while telling the audience about new things in the world. There's a new Nen technique the boys must learn. Bisky doesn't just tell them what it is. She explains to them how these techniques translate in a fight and gives them exercises to practice so that the audience can see. I chose this episode out of the hundreds of Hunter Hunter episodes because seeing Gon and Kiloa discover new ways to use their powers and seeing them level up is the best thing about the show. And I think exemplifies one of the core themes of the anime. Hunter Hunter presents a world that is vast, wide, and incomprehensible. 
But Golem and Kilua show us that you don't need to figure, figure it out all at once. That's not important. What is important is when presented with something new, you're able to absorb it with the same wide-eyed enthusiasm as Golem, and you're also able to interrogate and use it to how it best fits you like Kilua. This key when observing the strengths and weaknesses of the duo makes the conclusion that the two of them are the perfect pair. When one is able to walk in, into the world with knowledge and understanding of self and open heart, what else is needed? And it only took my favorite anime duo to show us that. Number seven, we have Fate Stay Night, Unlimited Blade Works. Season two, episode 10, Winter Days, a long way home. So here's what you need to understand about fate and its central conflict, the Holy Grail War. The Holy Grail represents the wishes of humanity while there's a price to be paid for making a wish. And that generally involves lots of death. Mages known as masters fight in this free-for-all battle not only through their skills and knowledge, but also with summoned historical heroes known as servants. These, these heroic spirits have been left unfulfilled in their past lives and are still tied to the mortal plane because of this. As well, each servant is also associated with a famous weapon known as a holy phantasm, for example, Excalibur. When summoned, a servant is tied directly to the mana of their masters. Without their masters, they cannot remain. However, to lose a servant also means certain death for their master, as heroic spirits are more than a match for any mortal. The combatants left at this point include protagonist Rin Kawasaka and her current servant, Saber, who was originally the other protagonist's servant, Shiru Emiya. Shiru Emiya does not have much interest in being a mage, nor the Grail, but holds steadfast in his ideals about justice and wishes to see the Grail destroyed so no one else will fall victim to its power. Rin is the heir of the Tosaka lineage and wishes to win the Grail by any means necessary, not because she has a wish, but because she simply wants to win. Both have lost their servants. Shiru gave up Saber in order to save a life, while Marine's archer acted on his own because it is revealed that Archer is an older Shiru Emiya who fulfilled his desire and ideal of becoming a hero of justice, but became disillusioned with his journey when realizing that his path meant nothing but death and despair. And now his only wish is to kill the present Shiro as a means to set himself free from that life. To save themselves from Archer, Reen enters into a contract of Saber to fight Archer and allow them to escape. Winter Day is a long way home, finds our heroes on the eve of the final battle against the heroic spirit known as Gilgamesh, who plans on using the Grail to eradicate humanity because he sees them unworthy of their lives because he finds the current state of the world disgusting. Gilgamesh is a heroic spirit who is seemingly war all unto himself, without being tied to any one particular holy phantasm to call upon. He can summon any weapon that he has come across, making every fight tremendously unfair for any heroic spirit without the same power. Shiru Emiya's heroic spirit is also one without a holy phantasm, but was killed by a sneak attack. Spoiler, not actually killed from Gilgamesh, who referred to him as a faker. You see, Shiro's magical ability is creating constructs from whatever weapon he, he touches, thus making him the natural enemy of Gilgamesh. As Rain, Shiro, and Saber strategize on the best way to defeat Gilgamesh, Rain turns in for the night to think of a strategy when Shiro tells her his desire to fight Gilgamesh. Rin praises Shiro for figuring out her plan and how his power could stand up against the enemy. Shiro admits that he didn't figure that out, but felt as if he had the best chance. The only problem is he doesn't have enough mana in order to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe in a fight. The next moment is what makes this my favorite episode of Fate Stay Night. 
It's the quiet moments in between the awesome fight scenes and set pieces that breathe life into any story. But beyond that, Rain and Shiro are supposed to be enemies in this war, and yet they are coming together to win. Not for some prize, because it's the right thing to do. Their relationship is the heartbeat of the story, and while Shiru is earnest to a fault, Rain is more calculated and less forthcoming with her feelings. Even when she decides to pass on her magical crest to Shiru, to give him enough mana for the battle ahead, Shiru can't help himself but restate his love for her. He tells her that one of the reasons why he fell for her was because of her strong conviction. Rain admonishes him, even though her love for him is what prevented her from killing him on a whim at the beginning of the war. Like usual, but adds that if he must unburden himself with his feelings, she will listen. However, the truth of her feelings can't stay hidden forever. And during the trance she puts them under to transfer her magic crest to him, Shiro sees a glimpse of the day that Rain fell for him. And upon waking up, Rain scolds Shiro for seeing her deepest secret before telling him to get enough rest for the day ahead. Shiro finds Saber wandering around, and Saber admits that her time together with both of them had been her favorite, and admits that she is trying to remember as much as she can about it before she must disappear. Saber makes Shiro promise her that, no matter what happens, that he and Rain will return safely together. To be honest, I really wanted to break my rule about only one series finale being on this list, and choose Epilogue from Fate, where Rain and Shiro have won the war, graduated high school, and moved to London to study at the Mages Academy, and be well on their way to find their happily ever after. And yet, as happy as that episode makes me, Winter Day is a long way home, is the foundation of that happy feeling. It's a moment to catch one's breath before stepping into the void that has been waiting. Rain gives up the magical crest of her family to the man she loves, yet won't verbally say it, admit it on the eve of the biggest battle of her life. Shiro wants nothing but to be a hero of justice and protect those he loves, and that means going into a fight he's not sure he's ready for, much less win. And Saber, a servant, summoned by not only Shiro, but Shiro's adoptive father in the previous Holy Grail War, wanting to fulfill her wish of destroying the Grail as a means to avenge her previous master. Fate shows us different reasons why people choose to fight, or not to, and, does, and it doesn't say if one choice is better than the other, only that a choice must be made. Number six on my list is Maid-sama, Season 1, Episode 26. Two cruel I. Ayuzama, and Usui the Idiot. Mates, Sama centers around a strong-willed student council president of Seika High School, Misaka Ayuzama, who is doing her best to rehabilitate the school's image through intimidation and striking fear through force upon the male population at the school. Misaki's secret is that she works part-time at a maid cafe called Maid Latte and tries her best not to let anyone at school know in order to prevent her image from being ruined. Takumi Usui is the most popular boy at Seika, who seems disinterested in most things and prefers to observe things from a distance to see how they'll play out. From afar, he seems to be perfect. He's good looking and good at any and everything he tries. He is drawn to Misaki because of her strong will, which makes her stand out from everyone else. Long story short, Usui falls from Misaki and learns that she works at Maid Latte, thus to prevent him from telling anyone else at school about it. She keeps tabs on them, and their lives become intertwined. Um, Usui is problematic in that he is extremely possessive and does things to probe Misaki to see her reactions. And I don't know what else to tell you besides this anime was made in 2010. So... Yeah, moving on. Their relationship is admittedly a mess. They mix as well together as fire and water, and even by series end, Misaki can't admit that she loves him, even after confessing that she's been holding back from her feelings. To get to this point in the last episode, the two of them find themselves killing time at a school festival where they promise to accompany their friend Sakura to see one of the band's she loves performs. Misaki insists on going because we meet the band earlier in the series and the lead singer rejects Sakura to try and get with Misaki, only to be denied 
by herself and Usui. They just wanted to make sure the singer did indeed have a change of heart. While they are separated, they enter a challenge across the school designed for couples. The couples that win get a special prize for the after party. The only general rule is that they must hold hands the entire time, and if they let go, they'll be disqualified. Usui teases Masaki throughout the challenge, prompting Masaki to want to shut him up by winning everything herself. The challenges are as follows. 10 minutes to get from the starting point to the first challenge. One person eating a bowl of ramen. Under a time limit, they can they complete this by Usui feeding Misaki because she can't use her right hand. A speed card game, which Misaki wins, and onlookers call her a demon. Ping pong, which Misaki wins using her offhand, and Usui teases her, saying that she's using the excuse of not being able to use her normal power because she's using her offhand. And by the final challenge, word has spread that a superhuman couple has been conquering these challenges, and they have quite the audience. The last challenge is a simple one. You must find a balloon in a pit of balloons that has a question in it and answer the question within the time limit. Misaki finds the balloon first, and Usui puts it between them before hugging Misaki close to pop it. Meanwhile, Sakura and their other friend, Shizuku, are waiting for the band to play, and Shizuku scolds Sakura for making them wait so long and doesn't understand Sakura's infatuation with the singer. Sakura explains to her, you can ask me what I see in them, but I can't explain it. Of course, they're cool, and I respect them for following their dreams. So there's that, but that's not all. Those sorts of things don't come close. Liking someone comes from a different place than that. So if someone objects, or even if you know it's not right, once you felt that feeling, you can't stop it. After the show, Sakura and Shizuku don't meet up with Usui and Masaki because the lead singer wants to walk around the festival with Sakura, and after a quick interrogation by Masaki, he tells her that she's making Usui hold himself back because she isn't honest with how she feels. The after-party prize is being dressed up as Romeo and Juliet to watch the fireworks. Usui finds an empty classroom for them to watch, where Masaki asks him if he's been holding back. Usui tells her that he'll answer that question if she'll tell him why she cares about him so much. Misaki says she doesn't know and wonders why he always teases her and provokes her and, admit, and admits that if they didn't do the challenge, she wouldn't, have had, she wouldn't have had to admit that she always wanted to hold his hand. She wonders why it must be him to make her feel this way, why her heart beats faster when he's around, and why she gets lonely when they're not together. She admits to hiding these feelings from herself. Usui admits that he teases her because he wants to see her reactions. Because normally she's the brash student council president, but after he teases her, she'll look cute or surprised or completely worked up for no reason. He tells her that he can't tell her how many times he's held back because he's lost count. They finally kiss and Usui tells Masaki that he's crazy about her, but Masaki stays true to form and tells him that she hates him, but they're still holding hands. I've used my series finale pick on this, not because I think it's the best finale, or that Meitama is my favorite ever, or even that Masaki and Usui are my favorite couple, though I don't, though I, despite all the problems, I adore them. But this anime makes you earn that kiss. From the moment Usui discovers Masaki's secret to all their misadventures and times they've shown up for each other, taking care of each other, Meitama shows that experience doesn't make confronting certain truths any easier. And while for a lot of stories, you wish you could dive into the page or through the screen to just tell two people they should just stop thinking about it and be together, we know that's not how it always works. As frustrating as it can be sometimes, there's something to be said about making the audience wait, building anticipation. Up to the point of uncomfortableness, there's something in that. Like how most covers of D'Angelo's Untitled cuts away three minutes from the original seven-minute time most people shy away from it, but admitting and by extension putting out into a world that you love someone, isn't that the most uncomfortable, uncomfortable thing there is? Doesn't that deserve time to breathe? So at the halfway point of the list, we have K-On! Season 2, Episode 12, Summer Festival. 
Kaon is pure fluff, and I loved every moment of it. You follow the adventures, or should I say, mostly lazy days of the light music club band after school tea time. There's the aloof and kind-hearted lead guitarist, Yui Hirasawa, who is unfocused but picks things up very quickly. The cool and bashful bassist and songwriter, Mio Akiyama, who is the band's biggest music lover as well as most popular member. The brash and energetic self-proclaimed president of the Life Music Club and drummer, Risuku Tanaka, who is always on the go and wants the best for the band. The gentle and warm-hearted pianist, Sumugi Kotobuki, who despite her family's wealth is always interested and amazed by seemingly normal everyday things. And the final member of the club is the driven, sometimes no-nonsense junior rhythm guitarist, Az Azusan Nakano, who joins the club because of the feeling she got watching them perform during her first year at the school festival. In Summer Festival, thanks to their club supervisor and Light Music Club alum, Samako Yamanaka, they can attend Natsu Fest, a music festival in the mountains. True to form, each member has different priorities for the festival. Mio wants to see every band she can, so much so that she wonders why she can't teleport or have more than one body to experience it all. Ritsu wants to help Mio experience all that she can. Azusa wonders if seeing so many great bands will inspire her senpais to want to practice more and take music more seriously. Meanwhile, Yui wants to have as much fun as she can, and Mugi wants to eat yakisoba. Mugi never gets to eat yakisoba, Mio never gets to watch all the bands she wants, and the group doesn't find a new motivation to practice. However, none of that matters, because at the last night, when the five of them are sitting on top of hill, on top of a hill overlooking the festival and looking up at the night sky, they promise to each other that they'll never stop playing together. Not because they're the best band ever, but because they understand that they wouldn't have as much fun playing with anyone else. There's something to be excited about just having fun and not worrying if something's cool or deep or even smart. The joy I get from K-On is unlike any other show on this list. Yes, there's poignant moments and yes, you care greatly for the characters, but man, is it just fun to kick back and chill with these characters and not worry about any existential threat or crisis. I wish I could say more, but I'm too busy smiling and having my heartstrings pulled. After school tea time forever. At number four, we have Violet Evergarden, season one, episode 10, a loved one will always watch over you. Violet Evergarden follows the Titular, titular character as she returns from war and tries to find her purpose off the battlefield. She chooses to become an auto-memory doll, who are women who ghostwrite letters for people. Violet chooses this profession because she wishes to understand the last words her guardian and mentor, Major Gilbert, told her, which was, I love you. By a love will always watch over you, Violet has become an accomplished auto-memory doll and sets off to the countryside to the mansion of a young girl named Anne to write letters for her sickly mother. Anne's mother has hired Violet to stay seven days to write letters to an anonymous person and has ordered Violet not to tell Anne who the letters are for. Anne, a curious and loving girl, just wants to spend time with her mother and is wary of visitors as they take her mother's attention and time away from her. While cautious around Violet, Anne is also bewildered by her as she believes that Violet is a real living doll. First from her job title, and the way she dresses, and this idea is reinforced by seeing Violet's prosthetic hands. Anne opens up more to Violet over the week and teaches her how to play house, gets Violet to read her stories, and play in the yard. While spying on one of their writing, session, writing sessions, Anne sees her mother collapse from coughing and rushes out to, com to comfort her. Anne knows that her mother isn't getting any better and admits that Violet isn't the only, isn't the one she wants to play house with or tie a ribbon in her, in her hair or be read stories by and wonders why these letters are so important if it's to someone Anne doesn't even know because that means it's not anyone who ever visits. What Anne does know is that these letters are taking what little time they have left together and she runs off while Violet comfort follows her. Violet reassures Anne that her mother's illness is not because of anything Anne has done, and that she is a good and kind-hearted person. The week comes to an end, and Violet, and Anne gives Violet a hug and a kiss on the cheek before discovering 
that she is in fact a real person and not a doll. Afterwards, it is revealed that Violet has written 50 letters that week, one for every birthday that Aunt's mother would miss after she passed. Violet's colleagues marvel at such a wonderful gift Aunt's mother has left her, but Violet breaks down in tears, saying how all she wanted to do was cry the entire week. And while the letters are wonderful, Anne will still be left without a mother, and she'll be all alone in that big house. But she finds comfort in the fact that every letter that's written deserves to be delivered, and that Anne can look forward to them every year. The job of an auto-memory doll is to be able to convey a person's true feelings in the form of a letter, to be able to find the words that people have trouble finding themselves. What a simple and yet devastatingly powerful idea. That words matter. And one of the hardest things to do, as silly as it sounds, is to write a good story focused around writing. Violet Evergarden not only manages it, manages it but does so in such a mas masterful way. On the right day, a loved one will always watch over you could easily be number one. But regardless of its rank on this list, like so many episodes of Violet Evergarden, it never fails to make me cry. At number three, we have Your Lie in April, season one, episode 18, Hearts Come Together. Tosei Arima is a piano prodigy who hasn't played the piano since his mother passed away. Because of the trauma around her death caused Kosei to not be able to hear the piano notes while he plays. His friends, Tsubaki Sawabe and Ryota Watari, do their best to keep his spirits up, but don't pressure him into playing again. It isn't until Tsubaki's classmate, Kaori Miyazono, befriends the group and demands that Kosei be her accompaniment for her violin competition. Kari doesn't care about playing music as it was written on the page, but rather wants her music to echo and be remembered in people's hearts. Kosei plays and falls back into the fear of not hearing the piano keys, but Kari's playing is a lifeline to help Kosei be able to hear the notes and play again. However, Kari is sick and gets hospitalized the day of the scheduled performance. After learning about Kari's condition, she makes him promise that he'll keep playing. Kosei begins to train under a friend of his mother's and renowned pianist Hiroku Seto, as well as mentoring a junior high schooler under the guidance of Hiroku, Nagi Aiza. He decides to give Kaori some inspiration to not give up so that they may perform one more time. He and Nagi plan to play a duet at her, at her school festival. Nagi has her own reasons to not only perform, but get close to Kosei as well. Nagi only started playing the piano because her older brother, Takashi, does. But after Kosei stopped playing, she noticed that Takashi lost some of that exuberant energy he had when chasing Kosei. Nagi at first wanted to get close to Kosei, partly to mess with him, but also to see if he lived up to the hype her brother built up over the years. During the performance, Kosei has Ryo to play the performance through his phone for Kaori. He changes the tempo of the piece on the fly as he gets more inspired, wanting to reach her. Nagi panics for a short moment before reprimanding him in her head, before, before buckling down and keeping up with it. Takashi is confused and cannot believe that Nagi is playing a duet with his rival. Because Kosei changed the tempo and Nagi answered his challenge, she's able to play the piece of her life. By the end, Nagi cannot believe that she has found her wings. She thanks Kosei and Hiroki before Kosei is confronted by Takashi, and he swears to Kosei that he'll beat him in the upcoming December competition. Nagi has her brother back. When Kosei visits Kari after the performance, she promises him, she promises him she'll do everything she can to get better so they can perform one more time together. While Kosei is the protagonist of the show, Hearts Come Together is a spotlight on Nagi. During the performance, Nagi admits that she wants to dedicate, that she doesn't want to dedicate her life to music. She's not ready to commit to going pro. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't people she wants to reach with her music. She wants to be on stage so she can use music to reach those she cares about. And she does wonder if it's selfish of her, but realizes that wanting to reach those whom she loves is as good as 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 good of as as good of a reason as any. 
Near the end of the performance, she wonders if it was good enough and if she faced the music with an open heart. After weeks of practice and digging up the depths of one's soul, you're left with something beautiful. Standing on that stage in the basket of an applause, that's when music goes beyond words. As they take their bow, Nagi realizes that she isn't some phantom in her brother's story. She is Christine, who just made her debut at the Opera House. So much of Your Lie in April is about not only what music means to an individual, but how it connects us, how music can refuse to let us go, how they can be shared, and how they can help us move on. In a year where I found it hard to listen to any new songs, Your Lie in April helps remind me that the old ones and favorite songs are just as good too, because your favorites will always echo in your hearts. My penultimate anime for this list is Food Wars, Season 1, Episode 22, The Competition of Blossoming Hearts. If I could only watch one anime series for the rest of my life, I think I'd choose Food Wars. There's something about this ridiculous show that refuses to let me go, and yet feels light enough to jump back into for an episode or two without needing to finish an entire arc, or that makes me rethink my entire existence, or makes me pick up pieces of my broken heart. Season four is my favorite, but for this exercise, I chose the competition of blossoming hearts. When Food Wars was focused on the false election instead of the fear of constant expulsion. Food Wars is about a fictional prodigious culinary school in Tokyo called Totsuki Academy, where its students challenge each other to discover new culinary frontiers. Its students primarily are from its junior high school, but the series focuses on the sole transfer student for the prospective 92nd graduating class, Soma Yukihira, and his classmates. The fall selection is a cooking competition which pits the top first-year students against each other to see who is the best of the best. As great as a protagonist, Soma is my favorite character in the series is Megami Tadakoro, the primary focus of the competition of Blossoming Hearts. Megami, while talented, and who possesses a keen awareness of considering the needs of the diner, has very low self-confidence and was on the verge of expulsion before getting help from Soma and the rest of their doormates. In Blossoming Hearts, Megami is the last to present her dish in the B-block preliminary round of the fall selection and needs an overall score of 88 to advance to the tournament round. Still unsure of her chances, she sees that the fishermen from her hometown have come to the selection to cheer her on. As she presents her dish, a monkfish curry dojuburo, which in the previous episode she broke down through suspended cutting, she reminisces about her time learning how to cook at her family's inn, learning suspended cutting to help keep monkfish on the menu, as well as a conversation with her mother about going to Totski and how her mother wants her, wanted her to see more of the world before coming back to help at the end, if that's what she ultimately decides. To thinking about her failing grades and remembering the encouragement and support she got from her friends. The vegetables used in her dish were all the ones used in her hometown. And she wanted the judges to be able to taste and smell where she was from, because that was the type of curry Megami wanted to make. And with the final score cast, it was time for Megami to leave her small hidey hole and finally spread her wings. She scored an 88, breaking a previous three-way tie. Before the fishermen from her hometown break into a chant for her, another student, Miyoko Hojo, one of the students tied for fifth place, looks on in amazement. Hojo, who is the heir of the best Chinese restaurant in Yokohama's Chinatown, dismisses Megami in a previous previous episode, when she believes Megami to be too weak to survive in a real kitchen. Hojo comes to the realization that she was wrong about Megami having nothing, because from her view, it looks to her like Megami has everything she will ever need to succeed. Sometimes liking something is as simple as being happy that good things happen for your favorites, or in this case, like so many others, that you not only got to see their growth, but that they also saw it for themselves. Soma is a great character, and he never hesitates even if he might lose, and this is a character trait that should be commended and celebrated. That's also something many people don't possess themselves. 
While with Megami, she is someone who is extremely talented and still full of doubt. She's the most conscious, self-conscious person on the show and is still able to face her peers no matter what. That is bravery right there. Because like Ned Stark taught Bran, courage isn't the absence of fear. But the fact is, the only time one can ever truly be brave is when they're they're afraid. Megumi might carry tremendous amounts of self-doubt, but she has never backed down. And from this moment on in the show, it's something that will never stop her. The last anime I have on my list is Clannad, Volume 2, Episode 6, Countermeasures. Clannad was the first new anime I watched in quarantine after I finished rewatching Neon Genesis Evangelion. Clannad follows the story of a third-year high school delinquent, Tomoyo Kazaki, who refuses to deal with the trauma following the death of his mother when he was young and the strained relationship it caused with his father. Tomoya avoids him after a fight which separated his shoulder, causing him to be unable to lift it above his head, thus preventing Tomoya from playing basketball ever again. Despite being sarcastic and sharp, he is someone who is kind-hearted and has a knack for helping people with their problems. His life changes when walking to school, and he runs into Nagisa Furukawa, who is trying to muster up the courage to walk up the hill, as she is embarrassed to be repeating her senior year because of a mysterious illness that caused her to miss too many days the previous year. Nagisa tells Tomoya that it's her dream to restart the drama club and put on a play at the school festival. As Tomoya helps Nagisa, they encounter other girls at their school and help them with their problems, such as first-year student Fuko Ibuki, class representatives and twins Kyo and Ro, Fujibayashi, school genius Kitomi Ichinose, and second-year student council president hopeful Tomoyo Sakegami. In countermeasures, Nagisa is absent because of her illness, while Tomoya is suspended for a fight caused by his friend, Yohei Sunohara, because Yohei wanted Tomoyo to beat up a gang of boys. Tomoya took the blame to protect Tomoyo's reputation during her campaign for student council president. The drama club needs Tomoyo to win to overturn a rule that forbids a teacher from serving as an advisor to more than one club. As Tomoya wastes listlessly during his suspension days at Yohei's dorm room, Wondering how Nagisa is doing, he is visited by Kyo and Ro. Ro has a crush on Tomoya, but is much more unsure of herself and shy compared to Kyo. Kyo uses this as an opportunity for Ro and Tomoya to grow closer and forces them to get a fortune about their futures at an arcade game and admonishes Tomoya for not selecting lovers when asked what their relationship is. She eventually leaves the other bus stop where Ro admits to Tomoya that she knows she sucks at fortune telling. But that fact gives her comfort, because if all fortunes were accurate, then that would mean everything is predetermined and nothing could be done to change it. However, if there's a chance for them to be wrong, then that means we still have choice. Side note, Kyo also has a crush on Tomoya, but does not act on it because she doesn't want to hurt her sister. The next morning, Tomoyo stops at Tomoya's to cook him breakfast as a way of thanking him for taking the blame for the fight. They are interrupted when Kyo and Ro stop by with food since they believe that there's no one to cook for him, only to get into an argument with Tomoya about who has the right to provide for Tomoya. They are interrupted by Katomi, who has had the same idea and also brought food. They all end up sitting down presenting Tomoya with the food they made, hoping that he chooses theirs. In the end, as an act not to hurt anyone's feelings, Tomoya eats everything. He returns to school the following day and is still sluggish from all the food he ate. He, and learns that taking the blame for Tomoya didn't help rumors of her delinquent past from spreading. To combat this, Tomoya comes up with a plan to showcase how awesome Tomoya is. By having her challenge different clubs to competitions, clubs happily accept with the condition if Tomoya loses, and she'll have to join the club that she loses, that she lost to. She wins events and games such as swimming, track and field, and baseball. The last match she has is against the tennis club. And by now, Nikisa has felt healthy enough to return to school. And thanks to Moyo for working so hard to help with the drama club. While 
Nagisa and Tomoya sit together during the match. Upon meeting Nagisa, Tomoya understands why Tomoya is so adamant about the drama club. She puts it out of her mind and continues with the tennis match. When an errant ball strikes Nagisa in the leg, when Tomoyo's opponent goes to help Nagisa, his hand is smacked away on instinct by Tomoyo. Kyo, Rel, and Tomoyo all notice it. Kyo laments that it's nothing surprising, while Rel thanks her for tears for helping her get closer to Tomoyo, which causes Kyo to also start crying. In the end, Tomoyo's efforts work and she becomes a new student council president, and the drama club has its advisor along with its members, Megisa, Tomoya, Yohei, Kyo, Ro, and Kitomi, making it an official club. Planad, Planad is a story about family, both the ones we are born into and the ones that we choose for ourselves. The blossoming relationship between Tomoya and Megisa that was planted at the foot of a hill is the story's center. Tomoya and Megisa Tomoya helps Nagisa develop more self-belief in herself, while Nagisa shows Tomoya that he is worthy of love and being and being accepted by others. I think this is why Countermeasures is my favorite anime episode I watched this year, because Tomoya and Nagisa found exactly what they needed on a random morning, and it wasn't until Tomoya slapped that hand away to help Nagisa that it was confirmed, but not official, that they loved each other. In a year that was trying that was so trying for so many people, I hope that you were able to find some shred of something that you needed as well. Music is by Francis Abrevalo. Logo designed by Gracie Messina. Keep updated on Instagram and Asians in Space. Listen and subscribe to Asians in Space on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and to see other platforms it is available on, go to anchor.fm slash Asians in Space. My takeaway message for the last episode of 2020 comes from Clannad, Volume 2, Episode 2, The Theory of Everything. I won't spoil the scene and the episode here, but this is my favorite line from the anime. Even if your life is filled with tears and sorrow, this world is still a beautiful place. Open your eyes and see it for yourself. Do what you want to do. Be who you want to be. Find friends to share both the good and the bad with. Enjoy life. Don't be in a hurry to grow up. Stay safe. Take care of each other and yourselves. Be responsible. And I'll be back in the new year. My name is Irving Chong. This is Asians in Space. Until next time, we out.